Thanks for joining us today. I'm Safia Kazi, and I'm the Privacy Professional Practices Principal at ISACA. I'm excited today to be joined by the Assistant Director of Technology Risk and Assurance for the University of British Columbia, Mary Carmichael. Today, we're talking about her recently released ISACA journal article titled Enabling Digital Trust with Canada's Digital Charter. Mary, we're so glad to have you on today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about the article and Canada's transition with the digital charter. Now, before we really get into that digital charter, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Yes. Uh, so currently, I'm the Assistant Director of Technology Risk and Assurance at the University of British Columbia. So in my role, I'm responsible for the technology risk portfolio for the university, which includes risk reviews, advisory assurance engagements for all aspects of the operations, including administration, academic, as well as key support services like finances or financial services. With my role, it's quite multidimensional. And one of the things I really enjoy about it, I'm able to use my broad skill set. So if you look at my profile on LinkedIn, I have a, what, what you describe as an unlinear career path. So I've done a bit of everything. So I've worked in IT and IT operations, project delivery. I worked in finance on my CP designation, as well as I worked in strategic planning. So now with my current role, I've found that I'm able to use all my different skill sets and my background to manage risk for the university. So on a personal level, I am a lifelong learner. So every year I always have a new goal or a new designation I like to pursue. So I've been working recently on governance, uh, especially IT governance, as well as risk management. And also on a personal level, I live in uh, Vancouver, Canada. So one thing about Vancouver, uh, it's a beautiful city. We're on the Pacific coast. So we have the, the joys of you know access to the ocean in terms of the beaches and also the paddle boarding, but also we have the mountains so we can go skiing and snowshoeing and snowboarding. So I live in a wonderful city and I really enjoy my job and the opportunity it provides me, especially the opportunity to learn more about uh, risk management and share my knowledge with others. So once again, I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on to share your expertise. So your journal article talks a lot about digital trust. Can you just set the foundation for our listeners? Why is digital trust so important and why is it something that organizations should care about? I think it really relates back to COVID. So at the time I was working for a public sector organization and majority of our operating model was in person. So you show up in person. And also when we interacted with our customers, it was largely in person. But with COVID, we had to switch to a different operating model overnight. So move more towards digital operating model. So how do we service or address the needs of our customers in a digital, uh, on in a secure online manner? But also how do we work remotely? So with the COVID pandemic, it introduced what I call a digital transformation in, in terms of the way we worked and also challenged biases um, at the time. It was assumed that people are unable to work at home because of productivity issues. People will not be able to function or make decisions or have meaningful meetings. But with COVID, it challenged those assumptions and it showed that we were able to be successful. So based on that experience, um, the Canadian government wanted to strengthen our digital economy because there's no such thing as turning back. We're not going to go back to traditional ways of doing business or more in person. The digital economy is here to stay. So with the role of the Canadian government, it's more like, what do we do to make sure the digital economy is set up for success? And that's where risk management comes into play. So understanding what are the uncertainties with the strategy, such as cybersecurity and privacy, but also making sure we leverage the opportunities such as innovation and creative uses of data and AI. 
Absolutely. And could you speak a little bit to the significance and some of the potential impacts of the Digital Charter Implementation Act? I think the biggest significance is we have set our strategy moving forward as a country. So Canada's competitiveness depends on our ability to use digital innovation to harness the power of data. So the fact we have this mandate or direction from the government shows this is the direction and this is how we're going to achieve that direction. So from a strategy point of view, it's great to have that clarity from a federal government. And then with the digital charter implementation, it outlines the how. So what's the approach to uh, strengthen our digital economy and also enhance it? So that's why it is significant, um, because once again, it establishes that foundation. But also at the same time, it does acknowledge the risks with a digital economy. And part of that is digital trust. So when you're interacting with a digital service, whether you're sending a message, looking up information, or transacting online, we want to make sure Canadians can trust the service. And how do you trust it? Is understanding how your information is being used. So is it being secured? And also cybersecurity. So once again, when the, or how the data is being protected, are there the proper controls in place to limit access and also making sure that information is not being misused? So the digital charter, I feel, sets up the guardrails, so gives business clear rules to support their efforts to innovate with data, especially with AI, but also introduces a new regulatory framework, allowing um, the businesses to understand what are the rules for data, but also making sure that we encourage them to be innovative. So end of the day, I think the outcome of this is promoting confidence. So when I use an online service, I want to have the confidence that I want to have a positive experience. So in terms of my data is protected, it's secure. And also end of the day, when I get information like the service or even the product in return, it meets my needs. Yeah. And so I know there's 10 principles in the Digital Charter Implementation Act, and it's based on three attributes. And I'm reading this from your article. Those three attributes are that privacy is protected, data-driven innovation is human-centered, and the digital economy is led by encouraging innovation. How do these three attributes relate to and help support digital trust? Well, it was interesting about the 10 principles, they were created by Canadians. So there was a consultation process from coast to coast where there's 30 round tables, plus an online survey to hear from Canadians about the digital economy, what concerns them, and what also what are the opportunities. So the Canadians gave feedback in terms of, if we're going ahead with the digital economy, Here's the principles we want the digital economy to be based on. So I think one of the significance or the key aspects of those principles is it's by Canadians and it's what Canadians are feeling. So they are concerned about their data. They want to make sure data is protected. Also, they want to make sure that there's universal access. So understanding the various users and their needs and making sure that the design of the digital service is human centered. And lastly, innovation. We want to be competitive as a country, keep our talent force. So part of that is making sure that we're progressive and are thinking about new ideas, new ways of working, embracing new technology by encouraging innovation as a belief. I think it's fantastic that they found people and said, what are the issues that are important to you and what do we need to include? For those of our listeners who aren't in Canada, can you tell us a little bit about the average Canadian and how informed they are about their rights as data subjects? Are they really concerned about things like privacy and security? What's the culture like there? I think we're very concerned. So I think privacy has always come up. And then also we have some strict 
I'm going to call um, privacy protection laws, especially when it comes to root disclosure about information breaches. So there are laws for both public and private sector in terms of understanding your obligations in terms of protecting data. So what's personal information? And also if the personal information is sensitive, what additional controls need to be in place? As well as we do have a compliance act to monitor. And also we do allow Canadians to file complaints if they have concerns about their data. And we do have a privacy commissioner that oversees those complaints and issues rulings. So I think this has been part of our culture is we are concerned about how our information is being managed in terms of uh, consent. Uh, we have quite a bit of rules about meaningful consent. So making sure that before we provide any personal information, consent is provided and also rules in terms of the life cycle of the data, how it's being gathered, how it's being used, disclosed, and also eventually disposed. And so we've been talking about these 10 principles. Could you detail some of these principles? What are they and what might they mean for the average Canadian business? Yeah, so I looked at the 10 principles. I'll highlight which ones are meaningful uh, for me as a start. So the number one principle is universal access. So this is equal opportunity to participate in the digital world and the necessary tools to do so, including access, connectivity, literacy, and skills. And I think this is a what I call a solid Canadian foundation, is especially with our healthcare system and several of our social programs, is providing equal access to all. So I think that's something that uh, value we have from other programs that we've carried on with the digital economy, because we want to make sure there's an even playing field for participation. And I think that's a key aspect in terms of the data-driven innovations, human-centered. We are concerned about our citizens and want to make sure that they have the opportunity to participate and also address the digital divide by giving them tools to participate in what I call the digital economy. Another aspect is safety and security. So when we engage on a digital service, like you know whether it's a transaction, when you're or sending out a text message or some sort of interaction in terms of looking for new information, we want to be able to rely on the integrity and authenticity and security of that service. So that's the foundation of the digital trust. So is when I engage through an online service, do I trust it? So do I have the confidence that my information is protected and also I'm able to get a positive end result in terms of the service and product I get in return? Control and consent, uh, this goes back to your earlier question about Canadians and how they feel about privacy. So we do have uh, some strict laws about meaningful consent and also controls in terms of how personal information is being managed. So we did build that in into the digital charter as a key principle. So we want to make sure there's proper controls over which data is shared, who is using the personal data and for what purposes, and also have the right to raise concerns and follow up. So having a feedback cycle of improvements are needed in terms of how our privacy is being managed. Another key aspect of the, of the 10 principles is transparency, portability, and interoperability. So we want to make sure with the personal data, there are some clear lines in terms of who's able to access that data. So whether or not a company shares that data with other companies and making sure there's some clear guidance regarding that. And lastly, I think this is the most important goal. I think, uh, I guess, among the principles is having an open, modern digital government. So here, the federal government is leading the digital charter implementation, but also that the federal government needs to set the tone. So by setting up the tone, they need to be the example of being open, modern, and leveraging digital services. So I think that's key in terms of here's the direction 
And we, as the federal government, we're going to embrace these principles and also change our operating model to support the digital economy and also embrace innovation when it comes to data. Yeah, I think that first principle of universal access, it's so fascinating. And I think it's really important, um, especially because we look at a lot of groups who've been historically disadvantaged continue to be disadvantaged by things like the digital divide. ISACA is doing a lot of work in this space with its foundation, but what are some strategies that organizations or people who are working in tech can do to help try to minimize the digital divide and bridge the gap? Well, I can tell you about my experience working at local government. So um, when I worked at the city of Vancouver, we had an ambitious agenda to move most of our services online. So using Vancouver.ca as our portal for paying property taxes, looking up information, your permits, your licenses. So transacting services online. But then the question is, what if someone doesn't have the necessary internet or proper hardware to access these online services? So part of that is, what are the alternative strategies? So one strategy is embracing our library system. So within the libraries, they actually have a computer lab where people are able to use internet as well as the equipment to do research and also to do any type of transactions required. So that's where we worked with partnerships with the the library system to make sure they're able to support that with the digital divide. And also as another option is we had our 301 service. So you can phone and via our call center. And then with our call center, we're able to transact that request on your on your behalf. So I think part of that is looking at our partners and seeing who else can assist us with the digital divide and providing some service options as well. And so then shifting gears a little bit, you talk about the importance of doing a gap analysis. How might a gap analysis help enterprises meet potential future requirements? I think with the Digital Implementation Act, part of that's understanding what is the future state. And I think what's clear about the future state is you need to implement a privacy management program. So when you read the act, it's understanding what is required for that privacy management program. And when you do a gap analysis, it helps you understand what is the, I guess, how far you are away from that standard, from that future state, and what actions need to be taken. So for me, it's really doing an impact assessment. So with this new act, with these standards that you will eventually need to adhere to, how close are we in terms of maturity? Are we quite a ways away in terms of setting up like a mature privacy management program? And what is required to set that up in time to be compliant for the act? It's a good tool for management as well. So if you are quite a ways away from the future state in terms of there are significant gaps in your process, your people, even funding, that's where you work with management to understand for this act to be compliant, here's what needs to be in place. And then from there, work with management in developing an implementation plan as well as an operating model. So for example, with a privacy management program, who are the staff required to support that function? Developing the appropriate policies, the training, and also systems and also safeguards to manage that information. Yeah. And so going back to a previous response, you were talking about innovation. And I think the example you mentioned was AI. I think a lot of organizations struggle. You know, there's so many opportunities for innovation, but then there's a lot of potential risk to their data subjects. So how can organizations balance this idea of innovation with the potential risk when it comes to their data subjects, security, privacy, et cetera? So I think another aspect of the digital charter implementation is the Artificial Intelligence and Data Act. With this act, it's the goal is to ensure that AI systems are being developed and deployed 
in a way that identifies, assesses, and mitigates risks of harm and bias. So when you're establishing an AI system, part of that is, is your team diverse? So trying to understand how the algorithm is being established and and if there are any type of unconscious biases being programmed within that algorithm. And then to confirm that, it goes back to testing and also making sure you have a diverse team to take a look at that algorithm from different perspectives to once again, is it producing a correct result or even a biased result based on unconscious um, bias? Also, as part of this act, uh, just with the use of automated decision systems through AI to make a prediction or recommendation or a decision about an individual, this act will allow people to ask for how is that algorithm developed? So, for example, if it made a significant recommendation about me, for example, whether or not a loan should be given um, or whether I should be admitted to a university program, under the act, I can ask for how did that algorithm make this prediction about me? So what was the data used and the logic? Yeah. And so I think a lot of times when people think about digital trust, they think about some of the most vulnerable people, specifically children. I know a lot of new privacy laws and regulations specifically talk about how to protect the data belonging to children. What does the charter say about data protection requirements as it's specific to children's privacy? With children's privacy, but if you are collecting data with children, there are limits in place. So it's deemed as to be more sensitive. So by default, being more sensitive, you are restricted in what type of information you are able to collect from children. And then also with the degree of sensitivity, that goes back to there will be a higher level of safeguards regarding who accesses that data and who's able to view it. So to me, it's just additional controls are implemented, whether it's at an organizational level or even technology to minimize the access to that data, once again, role-based security, but also clarify are established boundaries in terms of what information you are able to collect about that child. So it's a higher level of what I call threshold for data security or data protection. Yeah, I know earlier you talked about um, implementing a privacy management program. And one of the things that your article says is that organizations have to implement a privacy management program that includes handling complaints and requests for information. Do you anticipate that data subject requests are going to increase? And do you think that most organizations are able to handle this potential increase in requests? I think there will be an increase because now you have the opportunity. And also, I found if you want to make a request about your information, for example, if you want your information to be destroyed, it's really a straightforward process. You just send a written request. Also, if the organization does not adhere to your request, you're able to escalate that to the tribunal for further follow-up. So as part of this digital charter, it gives the public greater rights in terms of requesting destruction as well as having what I call an escalation route to the the tribunal to investigate. So I would say, yes, increase in number of requests and are organizations prepared for it? Obviously, probably not. So that kind of goes back to when you are doing your gap assessment, you have to think about what, depending on the type of industry you're you're in, if it's more controversial or, or even like the context you're operating in, you have to make some assumptions about the public in terms of requests for information, destruction requests, and then from there, making sure that you have the proper support in place to handle that. And also with this act, there'll be timelines. So if you don't meet the timelines, further escalation will be required. So I think that's a key consideration or a key risk for the privacy management program is 
once again, the, the public's response in terms of questions to your organization and making sure you're in the position to support it. Yeah, you just mentioned destruction. How does something like enabling the right to be forgotten affect and facilitate digital trust between individuals and organizations? I think it's part of the user experience. So when I provide information, I should have the right to revoke it. So I think that's from an end user point of view. So I think to me with the digital trust, it kind of enhances it because if I'm, I'm no longer working with that company or involved with the company, why should that company has my information? So it gives me the opportunity to request destruction of it. So I think to me, it empowers the, the customer and which in turn strengthens the digital trust. And so, Mary, a lot of our listeners, they're not in Canada. They may think this doesn't apply to them. But what can they take away from the charter? And then, I guess more broadly, what does digital trust look like around the world? Well, I think digital trust around the world is having that confidence. So when I engage with a service, um, whether it's online, my app, or a website, I have confidence in terms of that service is matching my, my information appropriately in terms of having the right safeguards. They have the proper infrastructure being secured and also the end result, whether it's a product or information or a service meets my needs. So I think with the digital trust, it enables the, the digital economy. And also I, I do find with the privacy, that's a big issue. So part of that is you hear about information breaches, you hear about companies reselling your information. So part of that, it does address that issue and hopefully mitigate that uh, situation. So for me, when I think about the digital charter, especially in Canada, I think really goes back to encouraging us to be innovators. So for us to build a culture of innovation, we must embrace risk and resilience. So with the digital economy, there are risks, but part of that is we have a framework in place to match that risk. And also depending on what happens during the compliance enforcement process, resilience. So we have a framework where we're able to make changes. So I don't expect the digital economy to be perfect, at least having a framework to manage and monitor, but also allowing Canadians to provide feedback so we're able to make updates over time. Yeah, and so here in the United States, we have a very piecemeal approach to privacy and data protection in general. Um, and I think one of the big concerns and something that often stops legislation from being passed is that it doesn't do enough to empower people. In your opinion, does the digital charter in Canada do enough to empower the average data subject? I think so. Uh, in terms of empowerment, it gives Canadians new rights. So new rights in terms of even suing a company if their information is not being managed properly, the right to be forgotten, making that request, and also having a stronger uh, enforcement body in terms of making complaints or raising concerns with the privacy commissioner. So for me, it empowers the Canadians by giving them a, a range of options in terms of following up if they have concerns about their personal information. And then before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to share for our listeners? I do want to discuss uh, something that's important to me is, uh, I guess with the digital charter, I think for me as a Canadian, it's great that we have this um, strategy in place in terms of saying digital economy is here to stay and also encouraging ways of making it um, stick. So one thing about the digital charter, it really sets the model for establishing our future, but also having a framework in place to monitor if changes are required. So once again, from a risk point of view, if we see this aspect happening, privacy that raises concerns, at least we have a framework to acknowledge and also encourage changes to our digital economy to move ahead to, to strengthen it. 
So I found with the digital charter, it supports risk-taking, but also does balance our economic growth with digital trust to encourage user competence and innovation. So I think for me, it's, I think the digital charter, I think what, what resonated with me was the alignment with the SACA's digital trust. Because for me, moving forward, digital trust is the underpinning foundation when we do use any type of electronic or digital system. So I just want to make sure that, um, just from my personal point of view, uh, with the digital trust, it's all about having that confidence and the confidence that the service will meet my needs and, and deliver a positive experience for me. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Okay, well, thank you. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But if you want more insights from Mary, be sure to read her ISACA Journal article titled Enabling Digital Trust with Canada's Digital Charter. You can find a link for that article in our episode description. I'm Safia Kazi, and thank you for tuning in to this episode.